since the COVID-19 pandemic consumed UCI and the world, we've been posting a steady stream of stories about new treatments and research breakthroughs, helpful tips on how to manage our new stay-at-home lifestyles, and the virus's impact on campus life. It's pretty much all COVID-19 all the time. We've recently adjusted our lens to see what post-COVID life will be like. We've posted a series of stories about what's next, looking at our daily activities like shopping, eating, and going to work and school, and how they will be forever changed. The killing of George Floyd has dramatically altered this conversation. Since his death in May, there's been ongoing protests in most American cities, and the Black Lives Matter movement has gained unprecedented support from a majority of people and institutions. It's all coming to a focus on August 28th with the Black Lives Matter March on Washington, D.C. That day was chosen because it's 57 years to the day of the famous March on Washington and the historic speeches by John Lewis and the Reverend Martin Luther King. Wake up and I have a dream still resonate louder than ever. Hi, I'm Tom Vasich, and this is the UCI Podcast. As part of our What's Next series of stories and podcasts, Doug Haynes joins us to talk about what's next for social justice. As the Vice Chancellor for Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion at UCI, and a professor of history, it's a topic he's deeply familiar with. And putting action behind his words, Doug is also leading the new UCI Black Thriving Initiative. It's a whole university approach to creating a campus culture where black people thrive. UCI, like the rest of the country, will be forever changed through a stronger commitment to advance social justice. Here's Doug to tell you more about that. So Doug, it's been three months since George Floyd died. <laughs> um, and in that time, there's been you know, massive protests around the country and for the cause of uh, Black Lives Matter. It just feels that there's a, this is a pivotal moment in history mm -hmm. in the United States. Um, you know, but you're the historian. What do you think about what's going on? Well, well the, the historian in me the, uh, thinks in terms of change and continuity. Yeah. Uh, I think that um, you're definitely seeing continuity insofar that the Black Lives Matter movement really emerged in the wake of the death of Michael Brown in 2014. Um, it, it really um, uh, generated uh, a, a broad um, uh, uh, appeal to people through the medium of social media. Mm -hmm. And the fact that not only Michael Brown, but even after Michael Brown, there were so many recorded deaths of unarmed black men, mainly, but also women, uh, in police custody. And so it became increasingly difficult for people to deny, ignore, or dispute that this was happening. And what made it, so that's the continuity uh, uh, what's different, though, is the scale. 
-hmm. And the scale in some part is a fact of being shelter in place and people engaging with this, the recorded uh, murder of George Floyd. And the, the protests on the streets, the demonstrations in support of Black Lives Matter are just so uh, vast, uh, both in this country and around the world. But what's striking is that even though the scale, the intensity is different, what we still don't know is whether or not this movement will translate into change. Right. And I think that's, I think that's one of the fundamental questions. Uh, there has been change. More people have their consciousness raised. There's no doubt about that. But that in, in and of itself does not necessarily mean that you will have lasting change uh, in public policy, mm -hmm. in the institutions that uh, we uh, tolerate but are implicated in these types of um, uh, killings. And so I think it's, we're in this very ambiguous moment coming up on the eve of a national presidential election. Well, you brought up something about uh, we're in the middle of a, of, a, of a pandemic. And the one thing I've been hearing about this pandemic is that it's revealing the flaws in institutions. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And we're seeing, we're seeing in some cases in higher education, you're seeing it in, in athletics, obviously mm -hmm. you can see like, mm -hmm. um, you're seeing it in government. Mm -hmm. um, how much of this, I guess, I mean, in a sense, how much of this pandemic is really fueling the whole Black Lives Matter movement, because it's revealing so much that that's most people over most people have been overlooking in the past. I think that's a very powerful question because in the U.S. context, economic growth has enabled people to defer and put off difficult decisions. Right. And as you suggested right now, the impact of COVID has cratered the economy and exposed decades of hollowing out of our institutions. And for that reason, more people feel vulnerable. There's no question about it. And meanwhile, they look to our national leaders and they can't get the job done. And so for that reason, I think that you have a lot of people who are sympathetic, if not empathetic, with the protesters in the streets, right? Because mm -hmm. if quote unquote ordinary people who are working hard, paying their taxes, going to school, if they can't secure a measure of security and the government is unable to provide a, a solution, going out into the street becomes a more attractive proposition yeah. to express your frustration. And especially when you look at the disparities of how COVID attacks American populations. Oh yeah. Black <laughs> Americans, Hispanics are dying at a much higher rate. And that's, I mean, that's the status quo and how, and how uh, you know, inequality affects uh, the United States. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to, to, just to sort of put it another way, the United States incarcerates more people than any other country in the world, right? We now know that prisons 
are super spreaders. Mm-hmm. And the state of California uh, uh, incarcerates a disproportionate share of black and brown men and women. And uh, those are sites for the failure of the American project. Yeah. And um, it just highlights the point that you made that people of color are disproportionately affected. And the reason why they're disproportionately affected is because they are, they, they experience inequality that uh, makes them more vulnerable, weakens their uh, capacity to prevent exposure. And so on the one end of the scale, you have people who are incarcerated. And on the other end of the scale, you have people who are essential workers who have to work. What, it, what I find interesting about the last few months is how corporate America has jumped on board. Mm-hmm. Um, you're seeing visual repu- repu- representation changing. You know, Aunt Jemima has been retired. Right. Um, you know, you see in sports, the Washington's football team got rid of its name. Right. Uh, you're seeing country music acts like uh, Dix- the Dixie Chicks are now just the Chicks. Lady yeah. Annabellum is Lady A. Yeah. Um, you're seeing support by companies like Nike, obviously, because, you know, a real important body of leadership in this movement are NBA basketball players. Yeah. And in turn, when we watch NBA games in the bubble, sure. uh, you know, you know, just to script it across the court is Black Lives Matter. Right. Um, I mean, how do you, how do you interpret, I guess, what you might call corporate support of society, societal change? Well, I think, Tom, you put your finger on something that's important. I think it's an example of uh, the corporate America not anticipating the future or envisioning a future that Americans participate in as consumers, right? In this case, you have corporate America catching up right to a movement but as much as you see the widespread adoption of the black lives matter uh, name and statements i think that while those are necessary they ultimately are insufficient Um, and they're insufficient precisely because of the how institutionalize racism is in the United States. And so one can certainly buy a t-shirt that says Black Lives Matter, but that in and of itself will not affect the high rates of poverty, food insecurity, or housing insecurity that African Americans endure day in and day out, right? It, uh, you, you, were, you, you were mentioning to me earlier the difference between Black Lives Matter and the civil rights movement. <laughs> that Black Lives Matter is very much based on action. Yeah. Uh, protest. Whereas the civil rights movement was, was striving for legislation, legislative changes mm-hmm. that have a lasting impact. Mm-hmm. Amit, do you think that the, you know, what's happening now with Black Lives Matter can transition into 
into a new civil rights movement where there where legislation will become part of the objective you know that's a i mean that's that's another very powerful question and i think that context matters for the uh, for the civil rights movement it was really about getting protections for constitutional rights that were embedded in the constitution but weren't honored at the state level and nor was the federal government particularly interested in protecting the rights of african americans and so the focus was on legislative change to secure that the irony is that because of and in spite of the civil rights act of 1964 the voting rights act of 1965 that it's quite evident that one reason for the black lives matter movement to exist is the inadequacy of legislative solutions to address anti-blackness and so the black lives matter movement is less interested in participating in a political process that hasn't delivered results mm-hmm. and so then the question becomes well can it can this movement affect change in other ways and and that is another question because there's many people who show up at the black lives matter black black lives matter uh protests who and who express their solidarity but remember it, you know it, there's fi- there's about 650 members of the house of representatives and 100 senators you need a majority okay. right and at this point it's unclear to me if there is a majority for black lives matter in congress how do you see the next few months uh uh um uh turning out well you know i i think that the the 56th anniversary of the march on washington that uh will become a a an occasion for the black lives matter movement demonstration you know may actually provide us with a a greater sense of the future direction right because that movement the civil rights movement that event in in 1963 mm-hmm. mobilized sufficient pressure nationally to get the kennedy administration to push through the civil rights bill with protections in it that probably would not have happened had it not been for the mo- mass mobilization of people that uh, on that day right. uh, and thereafter And so in some sense I'm kind of curious to see how uh, whether or not the march on Washington later this month uh is even possible in the context of a pandemic. Yeah. And to what extent it can affect change in the in Congress when right now Congress is a divided government and there actually is no legislation mm-hmm. for an updated civil rights act. And yeah. so I I think it's going to be a focal point for the country. Many people are going to be watching uh on various devices and many people may be there. But it's still unclear to me how the movement will mobilize people to act 
And that's the reason why we should watch what happens on August 28th. Well, going back to 1963, you know, Dr. King's speech, you know, I have a dream has inspired millions of people around the world. It's, it's, and are people going to be turning in on August, tuning in on August 28th to the Black Lives Matter March on Washington to try to find the same kind of inspiration? You know, I think, that, I think yes. I think that you can't ignore the, the impact, the significance, the endurance, importance of the I Have a Dream speech, right? There will be constant comparison. But I would submit to you that there were several speakers uh, at the 1963 March on Washington, and one in particular delivered a message that would resonate with the audience in the 21st century. And that's the speech by uh, uh, John Lewis, the recently uh, departed uh, member of the House of Representatives and real lion of the civil rights movement. Uh, and I think um, most people don't remember his speech, but I think it's as relevant today as it was then. Uh, in part because he, you know, insisted to all Americans to wake up and to take note of a social revolution that was uh, sweeping the South and across the country. Uh, and he pointed out that people were prepared to be beaten, jailed, and even lose their life in order to change America. And I think that's a very powerful message. And I think that's a message that re resonates with many people today who uh, are in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, I mean, the spirit of John Lewis will, will be in attendance that day. Absolutely. And I think he's gonna, he, I mean, most of the speakers will bring up his memory, but coming out of that, who's going to be the new John Lewis? Who's going yeah. to be the new civil rights leaders? And, and that's, that's an interesting question, and it goes back to the organizational model of the Black Lives Matter movement. It's not organized in much the same, in the same way that the civil rights organizations were in the 1950s and 60s. Mm -hmm. were, those organizations were organized to affect political change legislatively. Yeah. Right? to use legislation to affect social change as well. Mm -hmm. And so for that reason, those organizations were able to uh, uh, cultivate, grow leaders from young people like John Lewis. The Black Lives, Black Lives Matter movement is focused on direct local action. Against police violence in particular. Exactly. Yeah. But I think it's sort of spreading. The, 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 the optic of BMM is, is, is extending to issues around social justice uh, uh, writ large. So that, so that when you look at the model, um, it, it's really not pre uh, preparing individuals to lead a national organization. They're mm -hmm. preparing people to help participate in local direct action uh, against uh, police departments, but also to sort of reorganize investments uh, 
uh, and more uh, social justice oriented programs. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit more about what, how, how the Black Lives Matter movement and everything you know since George Floyd's death has impacted the campus. And you've been at the center of a lot of activity. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in June, you and Vice Chancellor Ron Cortez and our police chief, Liz Griffin, you, is you issued a campus-wide statement, you know, uh, stressing the commitment, and I'll quote here, that the UCIPD will continue to strive to provide services based on integrity, respect, transparency, fairness, and teamwork. Mm -hmm. I'd like to ask you first why you felt that was an important message to send to the campus. And since June, what is being done about that? Right. I, I, I think that the importance of that message was that the campus needed to communicate to the entire community that we have very clear expectations for our local police department, our campus police department. We wanted to reiterate that in light of the death of George Floyd and the deaths of other unarmed black men and women uh, at the hands of the police across the country. Um, we also wanted to underscore what our expectations are. And our expectations are that the police department aligns with our principles of inclusive excellence, equity, mm -hmm. diversity, inclusion, free speech. And I think that it bears repeating because we have to imagine a type of policing that's appropriate for a university campus. And I think the campus, the, the chancellor, the regents are now pushing the system to reimagine policing uh, that is less about policing the campus, but serving the campus to promote safety. Mm -hmm. um, and so th there are a number of reasons why we felt it was necessary to, to make a statement but it's also a statement to set expectations so that the campus community could hold the university accountable. Okay, this month you posted uh, on your website a Building a Culture Where Black People Thrive website. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and you're completing a report for the creation of a black, UCI Black Thriving Initiative uh, where you're, you're advocating for a whole university approach to create a campus culture where black people thrive. Mm -hmm. What is the inspiration behind this? The, the inspiration behind a black thriving initiative is the powerful evidence of the need for change across the country mm -hmm. uh, that was triggered by the killing of George Floyd and that led to a massive protests against uh, police violence and demonstrations in support of black lives. I think that it also challenged the campus. It challenged the campus to respond to this national imperative that black lives matter. Mm -hmm. uh, it, 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 it builds on things that we're already doing. 
in terms of our confronting extremism program, uh, uh, in terms of our inclusive excellence action plan. Yeah. But the initiative is very specific because we want to uh, create a culture where black people thrive by mobilizing a whole university response. And that's the key distinction of this initiative, that it's not piecemeal, but it implicates all facets of the campus uh, uh, that includes not only our outreach, but our uh, student experience, our staff experience, and our faculty, as well the alumni community and the black communities that we serve. Um, and so it's ambitious and far reaching because we haven't done something quite like this before. Are there any measurable objectives with, with the Black Thriving Initiative, such as to, in, to increase the number of, of black, black students on campus? Exactly, that's certainly one of the top. Yeah. Uh, the, the campus has increased the overall percentage of black undergraduates. Uh, uh, almost by double over a 10 year period, but that's clearly insufficient. Uh, and so we want to increase the participation of African Americans in our undergraduate programs. Uh, 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 second, we want to grow the enrollments of our black graduate students who really represent the faculty of the future. Mm -hmm. And equally, we want to continue to grow our black faculty. Uh, we've had some recent success this past year. We hired 13 black faculty. That's the single largest uh, uh, um, number that we've ever achieved in the history of the campus. Mm -hmm. uh, but still, um, for black undergraduates, it's still uh, highly unlikely that they will see a black faculty member in their primary field, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you look at the Black Thriving Initiative, it's really about a whole university response precisely because each dimension, whether it's the student, staff, or faculty, impacts each other. If we have too few black faculty, that can that means that black students have fewer role models, right? right. There's, that means that there's less of attraction to come to UCI. Similarly, right. for staff, there needs to be a sense of a thriving community for them to grow here. And their very presence, again, helps to draw other people uh, to UCI for their careers and for their education. Mm -hmm. And so the measurable outcomes are very concrete precisely because without them, we can't thrive. And I also wanted to bring up the point that the, this year's first year medical school uh, class has 12 black students. The, uh, out of 104 students, it's the largest, the largest cohort of black students in, in one single medical school class in the campus history. That's, and that's an achievement. That is definitely achievement, uh, and, our, and it's a credit to the, the LEAD ABC program uh, that really is modeled on the Prime LC to really uh, encourage uh, medical school applicants who are interested in serving the African, Black, and Caribbean communities. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to uh, personalize this next question. Um, 
you know, this is a real pivotal point in American history. You are a black American man. You were raised in a working class family. Mm -hmm. And now you're in a position where you can influence diversity and inclusive excellence at one of America's great public universities. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you describe how you're feeling in your heart and mind right now? You must have an incredible range of emotion. I, I think you're right. Um, I, I feel both that this is an incredible opportunity mm -hmm. precisely at this point in time at this institution. Yeah. Um, we've done so much and under the leadership of Chancellor Gilman, the campus will achieve even more. And mm -hmm. that is a remarkable testament to this organization, the people uh, who work and learn here. Yeah. At the same time, there were moments shortly after the death of George Floyd that I personally felt incredible grief that it took the uh, uh, recorded image of a black man being murdered to trigger and mobilize people to find value in black people and to publicly uh, chant Black Lives Matter. And so there's a real tension, but I've always believed the university is the single most important institution in redefining the contours of our society. Mm -hmm. And if we can do it here, I'm very confident we can do it elsewhere. I'd like to thank Doug for joining the UCI podcast, which is a production of UCI Strategic Communications and Public Affairs. Thank you for listening.